open up our Bibles to Acts chapter 20. If you are new here, a very warm welcome to Cornerstone Bedford View. For the last, I've lost count, how many months, over a year, we've been working through the book of Acts, verse by verse, word by word, and we're getting there, we're getting there, we're in Acts chapter 20, and um, we are just working through the beauty and the wonder of what we learn in this book, and so just some context for where we are, Paul is on his third ministry trip, and um, he is led by the Spirit and compelled by the Spirit to return back to Jerusalem. And the Spirit's actually leading him to be aware of an imminent arresting. An imminent, um, he, he's going to be tied up, he's going to be arrested, and he's, I think, aware that he's going to end up in Rome, where he wants to get to. So on this last leg of this journey, he's traveling partly by boat, partly by land. By boat, because he's trying to actually avoid a whole lot of enemies, there are many who are after him, wanting to arrest him, many who actually plot to kill him. So he's, he knows he needs to get to Jerusalem, so he's, he's working along that coastline, and he ends up in Miletus, which is 50 kilometers away from Ephesus. Now, knowing he can't go inland because of his safety, but also because he's got to catch the boat to get to Jerusalem, he calls for the elders at Ephesus and says, come and see me while I'm awaiting this boat. And uh, the passage we're going to read this morning is the conversation, the instructions that he gives to the elders of that church. And it also is his farewell. Because he, just nudged by the Spirit, is aware they won't see each other anymore after this meeting. So it's a bit of a sensitive moment for Paul, for the elders in Ephesus. But let's read from verse 17 to 38. I want to make some comments as we read, and then we'll have a look at what are some of the things we can learn about church leadership from this passage and from what Paul instructs these elders in this last visit to them? So from verse 17. Now from Miletus, he, Paul, he sent to Ephesus and he called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. Serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. What I love, just in his introduction, Paul is saying, you know my testimony. And the testimony you know is because of how I lived. Not just by what I taught. They know what he taught. But he doesn't say, you know what I've said. He says, actually, you know how I've lived. And how I lived is testimony of what I've taught. And that's a good challenge for us, right? If the world ever points its fingers at us as Christians, it's when we are hypocritical. It's probably what deters people from the church the most. I can't sit amongst those hypocrites. Because they preach one thing, but they live another. Paul's confession is, I preached a message, but you know how I lived. And how I lived is testimony of what I've done. People watch, people weigh us. Paul says, you know it. And I can come before you with a clear conscience of how I lived. He continues in verse 20. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the gospel message. He says, repentance towards God. Our first step in salvation is, I'm a sinner. And forgive me if that offends you, but that's how God calls us all. All have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. 
The first step is I'm a sinner and I need saving and I cannot save myself. For God says of our good works that they are like filthy rags before him. We never meet the glory that we ought to, the, the holiness or the righteousness that would permit us to enter into heaven. And at that point of repentance, we say, I need a Savior. And God says, I will send you the Savior in Jesus. Believe in him and be saved. And that's Paul just very, in a very summary version, giving the gospel. Verse 22, now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, led by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Would you keep going if you knew that? If the Spirit kept telling you, you're going to go to the next city, I'm leading you there. Oh, and by the way, affliction and opposition is awaiting. Go well, Paul. But he keeps going. Why? Because the instruction doesn't change. The command doesn't change, and he knows there's a far bigger picture than what awaits him. There's a far greater reward and inheritance in the midst of the obstacles and the oppositions. And so even in your walk with God, if you've seen the obstacles, if you've seen the giants, don't stop and say, Lord, surely that's not your way. Actually, it often is God's way. He leads Israel to their inheritance through a wilderness, and the ten, 12 spies come and say, we can't go there. There are giants. They will, they'll overrule us. They'll overrun us. But two say, no, but God said we must go. God said he would hand them over to us. What did God say? Not what do we see? So Paul knows what God says He's not worried about the opposition that awaits him. So he keeps going. Um, and now behold, I know none of you... Oh, sorry, let me just see. Did I miss a verse there? 24, thank you. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, Only if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of grace. Friends, let that be our... Confession. That's my hope one day at the end of my days when I'm upon my deathbed, however that would look. But Lord, that I ran the race that you asked of me to do. That I was obedient to you, Jesus, in the life that I lived. And whatever comes of it, whatever fruit is out of my life, so be it. But Lord, let it be. And I hope for you. I hope for me. What Paul says here, that um, he, he finished his course, the ministry that he received from the Lord. He continued to testify the gospel of grace. I pray that for myself. I pray that for you. Keep running the race. What has God called you to do? What has he called you to live in? The fullness of all that he has for you. But may we live in and run in and finish that race. Verse 25, and now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day, I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Him saying I did not shrink means there was reason to shrink. There was reason that Paul said I could have withheld held the gospel from you. I had fear. I had opposition. I had an enemy who tried to stop me. But I chose not to shrink by giving you the whole counsel of God. There's a beautiful study in that. Um, in fact, I encourage you. We've got on our website a 30 plus preaching series by Michael Eaton here in this very building on the whole counsel of God. And the whole introduction is around this very verse, Acts 20 verse 27, where Paul begins by saying, I did not shrink from 
declaring to you the whole counsel of God. What does it mean? It's this fullness of the gospel, the fullness of God's plan in our lives and how it involves us. Paul says, there was a reason to hold it back, but I chose not to. I kept proclaiming it. Led by the Spirit, he went on to keep preaching that word. Verse 28, so pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men, speaking twisted things, to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not see his night or day to admonish everyone with tears. He's speaking to the elders, those from Ephesus, and I love what he says to them. I love that phrase, care for the church. Look after the people. That's your call. Care for them. Love them. Protect them. We'll look at some of that this morning. But I love how also the instruction is watch over yourselves. Care for yourselves. Isn't that great that God would say to you, look after yourself. Care for yourself. Michael Eaton says this. He says, a, a blacksmith's greatest um, or, or, or most valuable object are his tools. He's got to look after his tools. Without his tools, he can't work. Well, that's like with us. Look after yourself because you are a tool in a good way. Um, you're a tool. I know some of you from the South, that means something different. But you've got to look after yourself. Keep yourself looked after, your energy, your health, your ability. God says, look after yourself. Watch after yourself because there's a call I have on your life. Don't run at 120% burnout and you've missed the full years of what God's got for you. There's a long race to run. Look after yourself. Watch over yourself. Watch after, over those who are around you. Be alert. And here's the warning. It's a frightening warning. But the wolves are coming. And sometimes they're going to come from among you. Now please don't look at the person next to you cautiously and wonder if they're the wolf and if they growl or if they've got a bit too much of a beard. Don't worry about that. But the truth is, if you're alert, you're aware of the truth of God's word. And when the wolves come, you will identify the wolves for who and what they are. The warning is don't be deterred and don't be distracted and detracted away from the true gospel. It's Paul's constant encouragement to the churches. Don't forfeit the truth of the gospel. Even when the wolves come, even when the enemy comes, when those liars are going to try and pull you away. I honestly don't believe the devil's got an issue with churches existing. But he's got an issue when churches proclaim the truth of the gospel. If any church withholds the true gospel, let them exist. Because all there are are wolves pulling disciples away from the shepherd. And so for our responsibility, church, is to know the word of God. Then we'll know the wolves. And then we can chase them away by the truth of God's gospel. Verse 32, he then says, I now commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and he prayed with them all. There was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him. 
been sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. I'll hold it there for this morning. So there's a wonderful moment, sensitive moment, some final instructions he gives to them. A key phrase that we've been looking at throughout this course of us reading through Acts is Jesus says, I will build my church. It's a profound statement. It's a freeing statement. But he's not saying, please, will you build my church? He says, I'll build my church. I'll use you in the part of building the church. But Jesus makes this promise. And so what's wonderful there is that as we see through all these journeys throughout Asia and, and, and modern-day Europe, and you've seen all these churches established, God does not just gather people and leave them to their own demise. He doesn't just say, do your own thing, make your own plan. But actually says, no, Jesus will build his church. And what Jesus does is, and what Scripture gives us, is a model. It gives us a plan. It gives us roles, functions, gifts, gives us a variety of people who can come together in their differences and yet find unity in being the church of God, being built up together, that we would grow and mature and that we would reach the nations with the gospels. God says, I've got a plan and I know how I will build my church. So let's look at Philippians 1 as some of the instructions when it comes to the plan and the shape and the the model that God builds his church. What are some of the roles and the functions we find within the church? So in Philippians 1, Paul writing from verse 1 to 4, it says, this is his greeting. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul's writing to the whole church. He's not only writing to the elders or to the leaders, he's writing to the whole church. And in this introduction, he tells us who makes up the church. Let's have a look at some of the roles that he identifies. Firstly, we see saints. He says, I'm writing to the saints at Philippi. Now, saints are the highest order of life in the kingdom. It's every single believer is a saint. Every single one of us come to Christ as Christians, as believers in him, are called saints within Scripture. And it says that every single saint within the local church, within the church, has a function, a role to play, a gift, an ability, an anointing. We can see in Romans 12, verse 6 to verse 8, it describes a whole lot of some of the gifts that you and I possess, our differences, but how we all build one another up. Everyone in the kingdom, um, every one of us in the kingdom is equal. All of us. The elders this morning are not more equal or have a, a greater grace or a greater value before the Father, but every single one of us are called saints, which is quite wonderful and quite exciting. You might say, but Greg, aren't saints meant to be holy? Well, I know me. I know the gospel. And Jesus says that you are made righteous in him, that you are holy in him. You've been justified in him, that were you to stand before the Father, which you do day after day, but one day in judgment, he'll look upon you and say, you are holy you are a saint. And that's a wonderful title for us to hold. Saints. 
what I wouldn't do, I wouldn't encourage you to change your business card to St. Gregory III, <laughs> as wonderful as it sounds, and start getting stained glass windows of St. Gregory III in the room or wherever. But it's a truth we need to hold on to, that within the local church, within us, within this group, within us this morning, you are saints, made holy by Jesus, accepted. The highest order of life in the kingdom is this position of saints. But then we also see he names overseers. Within the church, there are saints, and then there are overseers, the elders. Elders carry the governmental leadership office within the church. They are called to lead within the church. This plurality of elders, this uh, many as a team come together. Important to know is that elders is a position that's for men. And I'm not, I can't unpack that in full detail this morning. And if that offends you, please come speak to me or to one of the elders. What's freeing to know is that that's not an eldership decision. The men in the church didn't say, well, let's just have a men's club and call us elders and no ladies allowed. It's actually, we see it within God's word. God says, he's instructed that elders will be men. But if you see throughout scripture, you see it, it, it's part of God's model right from the beginning. You see, always there's a unity within the church, but there's different roles and different functions. Within the Trinity, we find God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, equal, but yet they're aware of their different roles and functions within the Godhead. Jesus says, I see what my Father does and I do it. And I hear what my Father says and I'll speak it. He submits before the Father though he is equal to the Father. He acknowledges the function the Father plays. The fact that God says, call me Father, he identifies as Father, is because he's telling us there's a function he will play within our lives. The fact within marriage that God would say, Husbands, lead your wives. Wives, submit to your husbands. And again, that could offend the woman in the room. And if it does, it means you don't understand what God is saying. Because God is not saying men are of more importance, men are of greater value. No, because Genesis says men and women were created, both created as the image, in the image of God, possessing his glory, equally created before God, but with a different function each, needing to support one another. The moment we grasp that, we can understand that God says so the same within the church. Could men lead? Could men be fathers? If a woman is saying, I want to be an elder, that's a woman saying, I want to be a father. And God says, that's not the way I structured it to be. So woman, if you're offended, please don't be. We need mothers within the church to be mothers with a role that fathers can't play, with a role that men can't play. But together we get to serve the Lord, we get to serve one another and we get to see the church be as she is called to be. And so elders will place on the role. I'll unpack that a bit more now. We then see deacons. Deacons come alongside and serve alongside the elders in a vast array of capacity, men and women within the local church. And then we see Paul refers to himself and Timothy as servants. And that's alluding to men and women on a trans-local team. And we've looked at that. As a base church, we see how we partner with men and women from all over. Marcus, right now, this morning, him and Adele are functioning as servants, those of the trans-local team in the NCMI team. That's who we partner with. They've gone down to Hilton to go and minister to a church. And that's what we've seen happening. So Paul's saying, actually, there's a whole lot of life within the local church. Today, this morning, 
we're living this out, right? Elders with deacons, with those part of the NCMI team, with the saints, all of us together, being the church that Jesus has called us to be. So this morning, with a few minutes left, I want to focus on the role that elders will play within the local church. What is the role that elders are called to play here in this local church? But let me begin with a picture that I think could help us. So I have this privilege of being a marriage officer. And as a marriage officer, I have the privilege of officiating a number of weddings. And I mean, weddings are, are great. It's such a celebratory moment. If, if, if you've been married, you can re- remember your wonderful day and all that it possessed. If you've been to a wedding, you know the joy, the celebration, the fun of it, the beauty of it, the wonder of it. If you're not yet married, one day, dream about it. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be amazing. I don't, I don't have to do it, though. Someone else can do it, right? Um, but there's a really special moment at a wedding I think everybody kind of looks forward to, and when you're in the front as the marriage officer, you get to see it a little bit, but, um, or when you're officiating the, the, the wedding, you get to see it. You, you've got the groom, and the groom's right in the front of the chapel, and um, he's waiting. He's waiting for his bride to appear. He's normally there early, and perhaps they haven't seen each other that day. Normally, traditionally, the bride and the groom don't see each other that day, perhaps even for a few days. They've managed to avoid seeing each other. So he's in the front there, just full of excitement, full of anticipation and and eagerness, nervously, patiently waiting for his bride to arrive. The bride, she's busy being prepared, okay? So normally on that day, it's quite a busy day for the bride. She's got friends and family and professionals all around her doing hair and makeup. A whole team is just getting her ready, preparing her that she could be given to her groom, that she would be perfect and perfect to be presented to her groom who's eagerly waiting for her to come and preparing for her to be united with him in marriage. That preparation, although doesn't just happen on the day, that bride has been prepared for a while now Friends and family, leaders amongst her have helped her to be ready for this wedding day. Emotionally, spiritually, mentally, even physically. There's a long preparation for that bride to be prepared for the groom who's eagerly waiting for her to come. And then there comes that awesome moment that I'm thinking of. Everyone stands. The bride has arrived. And if possible, she's there with her father. And perhaps in a perfect white dress. And the room, as she arrives, they do this. They look at the bride, see how she looks, and then they look at the groom. How excited is he? And they look at the bride, and they look at the groom, and they're bouncing between the two. Because they love to see the beauty of the bride and her excitement of, I'm here, and I'm ready, and I've been prepared, and I'm here perfect for this ceremony. And the groom, they love looking at the groom. Some grooms are in tears and they need the tissues and some grooms, their hearts are racing and they're shaking, but they're just so excited because she's here and they've waited so long for this moment. And there's this beautiful moment when they come together and I'll let them hold hands with sheesh. It's cruel just to say, you know, keep a two meter distance, like just, just say hello to each other. But they're just so excited because what awaits them now is this union before God. This very dream that they've been waiting for, this celebration of a moment about to take place. They're both here before God, ready to be united before God. And it's a wonderful moment. 
And I, I don't find it by any coincidence that God says, I love this picture. So I'm going to use this picture to describe your relationship with me. That's what God says. So God says that exactly perfectly describes the way Jesus is with us. And it says Jesus is the groom. And we, the church, the people of God, we are the bride. And it says that Jesus is eagerly anticipating the day that he gets to be with his bride. He's waiting, excited, filled with joy, filled with anticipation. It says he can't wait for the moment that the bride arrives, that the father would ring that bell and say, it's time. It's time for you to be united with your bride. So what are we waiting for? Well, the bride has been prepared. The bride is busy being prepared. You being here this morning as the bride getting her hair done, getting the makeup done, being made far more beautiful than she was yesterday. Every time a person says, I choose Jesus as my Lord and Savior, the church gets far more beautiful for her groom. She's getting more beautiful. She's getting readied and prepared. And so as a church, we're not just waiting. We're being prepared as this bride to meet her groom so that that wedding day would be an incredible celebration. So what's it got to do with this morning? Well, elders play a role in helping the church being prepared as the bride for her groom. I've heard it read that elders can be described, just using this metaphor of the wedding, elders can be described as bridesmaids. And if you watch the bridesmaids on the day, they fuss over the bride. They don't care what happens to them as long as the bride is ready. If it's a bit rainy and it's muddy, those bridesmaids don't care if they get muddied, if they get wet. As long as the bride is dry, as long as that dress is clean, as long as by the time she stands at the end of the altar, she's not panicking, she's not fretting about anything, she's not worried about anything, the bridesmaids make sure that she is good to go. The elders carry that role and responsibility within the church. They want to make sure that we're ready. And if it means getting a little bit dirty, so be it. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. Look what Paul says to the elders in Ephesus. Verse 28 of what we just read. Acts 20 verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. It's God's people. In which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Elders are called by God. It's not a position we say, well, I'm just qualified to do it. There's a calling. It's one of the things I love about how Marcus leads this team. He doesn't look at charisma. He doesn't look at your academia. He doesn't look at how popular you are. He asks one question, which is key. Are you called by God to this? And if yes, then we're going to work this out. We're called by God. Paul tells that to the overseers there. But then look, to care for the church of God. Care for the bride. Care for her, which he obtained with his own blood. The church belongs to Jesus. The church is the bride of Christ. Elders, care for her. Be bridesmaids towards her. Make sure that she's ready for the day. And so church, that's our responsibility as we go on. So let's have a look. Last three points here. 1 Peter 5 verse 1 to 4. Peter being an elder himself, he writes in his letter to churches, to leaders, and he describes some of the function quickly of what an elder is called to do. And so as, as I look at this, just keep in mind this picture. Elders are called to care for the bride and see some of the function they have. So Paul, um, Peter writes, So I exhort the elders among you 
as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that's among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, Jesus, the chief shepherd, the groom, when he appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So what is he saying? He's saying three things. Not an exhaustive list, but three things. He says to elders, you're called to God, you're called to gather, and you're called to guide. Let's look at that quickly. To God is to elder. You are to elder them. You are to guard the church. Care for the people. Pastor the people. Love the people. In all that they carry. In the good and the bad and sometimes the ugly. Love them through it all. Guard the gospel of the kingdom. Know the gospel. Know and protect the kingdom of God. It pleases desire to please God first. Fight for the gospel. Our emphasis as a church is Jesus. And elders need to make sure that that is protected always. We're not cause-driven. And let us not, Lord, preach a cause from this pulpit. But let us preach Jesus. That is guarding the gospel. We do not elevate ourselves. We're not called to elevate ourselves. Elders are not to build themselves And I don't mind if churches do this, but we don't do this. We don't put our faces on billboards or adverts because we're not pointing people to us. We're pointing people to Jesus. We guard that. Elders are called to guard the purpose of the church, which is to make disciples of all nations. A church is not successful by its seating capacity, but by its sending capacity. We need to keep that heart. And we've learned about that as we looked at base church it's good to see here we continually are sending and continually sending and God keeps releasing and God keeps releasing. We went from 31 elders two years ago to 21, back to 31. Lord, soon it's going to be 21 again. Watch this space, right? We need to guard the vision of the church. What is it that we're here to do? It's to love Jesus Christ. It's to make him known. We are to continue in the ministry of the Spirit and the Word, which means as elders and as a church, we need to constantly be hearing God speak, constantly pursuing His voice, not our wisdom, not our experience. Cornerstone Church is not built on tradition or what we did yesterday. It's what is God saying to us today. Let us be Word-led, Spirit-led, and that's our continual approach. We are called as elders, and elders are called to gather. They're called shepherds, gather shepherd the flock. It's another wonderful picture that God uses in scripture, that elders will be called shepherds to care for the sheep in their need, to protect them, to raise them, to strengthen them. Jesus calls himself the chief shepherd who would come again, and we, the sheep, would know his voice. Again, there's that whole thing of knowing the voice of the shepherd, not listening to the wolves among us, all right? Elders are called to gather the sheep together. David, in Psalm 78, it says, And David shepherded them with integrity of heart and skillful hands. He led them. Paul says to the the elders in that passage we read, verse 28, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock. Shepherd them. Care for them. 
Be a godly example as a shepherd. There's a phrase that I've, it lingers in my head a lot lately, especially as I'm walking with men and women trying to shepherd. In Scripture it says we are all called to be above reproach. It speaks that specifically of elders. Be above reproach. Leaders, be above reproach. And what that means is be free of accusation from people around you. So if somebody looked at you, could they accuse you of wrongdoing? Live a life, live an example that you're free of accusation. You're living above reproach. Pray for the flock. The main thing is that elders will give an account for how well they shepherded, how well they loved and cared and protected the sheep. Lastly, it says that elders are called to guide, to oversee, to, to oversee, to be overseers, to lead the church. And they lead as a team. We'll see within all those churches established, the instruction is to build a team of elders, a plurality of elders. And one who leads, and here at Cornerstone, Marcus is the lead elder who leads a plurality of elders across 10 sites. It's a wonderful church model that works for us in, in, in serving God as we are called. They are called as elders to bring governmental oversight regarding doctrine, discipline, and direction. All right? That was important within the church. Can I encourage you, if at any moment in your time being part of this church, you question the doctrine, or you question the direction, or you even wonder about the discipline that's been spoken over you, or, 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 or the nudgings, or the slight rebukings, however you want to word them, if ever you have those questions, please come and speak to the elders, because they carry the responsibility to establish doctrine, discipline, and direction. The worst thing you could do is grumble. Grumble to your life group leader, ah, oh, Greg preached on blah, 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 blah. It's the worst thing you could do. It's rather to come to those who have that governmental oversight and come speak. Actually, the worst thing you could do is just leave. And I've had it before where people have just leave. One example where it worked really well, I had a lady chat to me um, after a couple of, of, of Sundays that she was here and said, Greg, I just want to clarify something. It seems like as an eldership, you guys are preaching the assurance of salvation. One saved, always saved. And I said, yes, we do. As Cornerstone Church, it's a doctrinal belief. We believe it's in our foundations book. We believe that if someone is genuinely saved, that cannot be lost. She says, well, I, I don't believe that. Can I read some materials? I Absolutely. Let's talk about it. Here's our foundations book. Read this. It's really good. And she did. And I loved it. She came back to me a week later and said, Greg, I read it. And I'm not quite there yet. But is it okay if I still stay in the church, even though we disagree? Absolutely. Well handled. You came and told me something. You said, Greg, I don't know if I quite agree with you, but I, I like being here. And I want to be and I want to grow. That's the journey we're on. If ever there's a moment, friends, that you are struggling, please don't don't grumble. Don't say the podcast said and then Marcus said or Greg said or the eldership says, but yet the guy at that big mega church says, well, then go be pastored by that big mega church. I'm sorry, but here's to say we are called to lead. All right. Even to speak into your lives. Our final hope in all of this is that we would see every single one of you run in the fullness and the freedom that God has for you and the goodness in Jesus, the fullness of salvation. And sometimes that requires that we correct doctrine. Sometimes that is us saying, we're going in the wrong direction. Let's go this way. Sometimes it even requires a little bit of discipline. And that's what needs to take place. Can I encourage us this morning, as we're looking at leadership within the church, 
that our hearts would be, we're going to trust this. We're going to trust this. Because here's something that the world does. The world's got this ability to take what God created perfectly and distort it to make it look flawed. And then often what we end up doing is we see a flaw in the things that God made right. Take, for example, marriage. God created marriage to be his perfect celebration. But today, marriage is very much frowned upon. It's feared. It's the good old ball and chain. And people are avoiding marriage in some ways because the world has distorted it where God said it's beautiful. Take money. God says money is not a bad thing. It's a resource for your hard work, but the world can flip it. Take sex. God created sex. I can say that because he did. It's in his word. Song of Songs is lovely, right? But then the world goes and takes it that we are ashamed to even speak of it because we're so afraid it's full of sin, but God said, but I made it. It's perfect. Don't distort what God's turned for good. Take leadership. Often we're so afraid of leadership because of bad leaders we've experienced that the thought of submitting to a leader puts tension in our hearts. We almost want to rebel. I don't want to be led. I don't want to submit. I don't want to trust a leader because of my boss or because of the government or because of world leaders. No world leader is good. But what we end up doing is we're saying, God, your perfect model and plan is being distorted by the world. Can we fight back for what God has created to be good? Can we go back to the word of God and say all those things that the world's trying to distort and muddy? We say, actually, Lord, you've created to be right. And if we do it your way, God, it's perfect and it's good. Church leadership done God's way is perfect and good. And so let's trust. Let's build this relationship. Let's partner together in this. If you have any offense with the elders, and you probably will, because we're human and we say things the wrong things sometimes, we do the wrong things, we might have ignored you, sorry, hello everybody, um, but please don't. In this partnership that we're in, come meet us. Can I tell you, we, we, we introduced you to the elders, the four this morning and not the whole team, because we're all approachable and we'd all love to know your name and know your story, but we've got a big team and we'd love to see you walking with a team of people in your life. All right, could I ask us to stand? I'm going to end in prayer. And so we're on a wonderful journey, Jesus building his church. And I encourage you this morning, have a good grasp of what eldership entails. If anything I've said this morning doesn't quite make sense, come and speak to me, speak to one of the elders. That's why we're here. And let's journey this together. So Lord, thank you for this morning, for the words that came for the privilege for us to worship together. Thank you for new faces who have joined us this morning, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for Tyron, if he's here this morning, that you know him by his name, and that you're calling to him. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for the leadership that you've put within this church, for Marcus and Adele. Bless them, Lord. Protect them as they watch over us and lead us and protect us. Thank you, Lord, for your way. It's perfect. It's good. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you build your church and we are your church. Thank you, Jesus, that you're the groom and we are your bride. We look forward, Lord, to that moment face to face. We can hold your hand and be united to you for eternity. Amen. <laughs>